I think the biggest hidden secret is acquisitions. I think they're so much easier than startups. Like you already have the pieces moving and they're just not going maybe as fast as you want them to go. So you're like, okay, we need a new runner. We need a new QB, but you have the infrastructure there, right? So you replace a sales manager because you know how it should be done because you've been selling 200 used cars. And so it's you don't actually- have to deal with that cold star problem. You just kind of dive right in. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Daniel Kranick is founder and dealer principal at Time Auto Group, a franchise dealer group consisting of seven rooftops in Portland, Oregon. In this conversation, we discuss scaling his dealer group using cash out refis, his secrets to a successful dealership acquisition, tax strategies and tools for wealth creation, industry trends that he's bullish on, the time he made $10 million on Tesla stock, and much more. But before we dive into the show, this episode is brought to you by CDK Global. CDK Global has been empowering nearly 15,000 dealers with the tools and technology they need to build deeper relationships with customers. Their team is keenly aware of the state of dealership technology, and while many vendors promise seamless experiences between your CRM, DMS, digital retail, and fixed ops, most of these bolt-on solutions tend to break workflows and cause more harm than good. That is why CDK has launched a new dealership experience platform. This new integrated software consists of everything you need to operate a dealership efficiently while delivering an unparalleled experience to your customers. Basically, everything working together, not separate, one system to run your dealership as opposed to 10. CDK developed it with an outside-in approach, listening to dealers every step of the way. You can learn more about CDK's dealership experience platform by visiting cdkglobal.com DXP or clicking the link in the show notes below. This episode is also brought to you by Podium, the lead conversion platform for car dealerships. Podium helps you get found at the top of Google search and convert new leads faster with industry-leading communication tools and AI. With Podium, you can finally take the guesswork out of lead management, bring every lead into one unified inbox, respond automatically in two minutes or less, and even book appointments using AI. Get Podium and get ready to convert leads faster than ever and see why over 100,000 businesses like yours have given themselves an instant advantage with Podium. Get started today with 10% off your plan by texting Car Dealership Guy to 833-441-1166. That's 833-441-1166. Text that number and mention this podcast to get 10% off your plan or visit the link in the show notes below. How'd you get into this business? Yeah, so... First off, I loved cars. And I think going back to like really what drove it as a child, I was like just obsessed with cars. And I probably wanted to get away from, I wanted freedom as a kid. I wanted mobility. So I wanted like my own bike, if you will. That was my first set of wheels, obviously. Then I wanted my car. I just dreamed about getting a car. I grew up, my parents were immigrants, so they were pretty tough in general. You know, they didn't like to go Where are they from? Where are your parents from? Romania. Nice. And they were pretty tough in general. They were definitely like, uh, you know, strict. They wanted school. They wanted me to be a doctor or an engineer. There was only two careers for me. <laughs> Straight A's and doctor and engineer. And so, yeah, anyhow, I ended up buying a car and selling a car in high school and uh, made a profit. And then I found this niche, which was Volvo 240s and Volvo 850s. And I built this little like parts department, if you will, down in my dad's basement and started buying cars with my mom's business license through Copart and just slowly started flipping them. And what you found what you, out- What do you mean like, by your mom's business license? How, how did you do that? So at Copart, you didn't need a dealer's license. You just needed a business license and you could buy, I think the number was like 10 cars a year or something, but they never really like monitored that. So if you bought 20 or 30, nobody really cut you off. Anywho- that's how I got going. And then basically one thing led to another, kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And I ended up selling like 250-ish Volvos in high school and never really looked back. Where was this? I mean, where was high school? Where were you living at this time? Well, it's funny. So in Eastmoreland, which Reed College is the college that like Steve Jobs went to. So it's, it's, a, it's a really nice neighborhood. I went to Central Catholic High School and then I ended up graduating from Cleveland High School. So I did two high schools. And where is this all in, in Seattle? No, Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon. Got it. Wow. All right. So parents, immigrants, you get here, right? You start flipping some cars. How do, how do you get to the dealership world? 
Yeah. So out of high school, I basically was like, all right, I'm going to get a dealer's license. This seems like the way to do it. I subleased a couple spaces from an existing dealer, call it like five, five parking spots and a and an office. And then this guy ended up going out of business in like 08, 09. So I'm like, oh, wow, I got to take this lease on. And that was definitely a little, you know, scary at the time, like anything, but I did it. And I convinced my mom to co-sign for me for a uh, AFC credit line, which my dad was like, hell no. He was definitely not into me being a car dealer. Uh, the last thing he wanted me to do is sell used cars. Why? What, <laughs> what did your dad do? My dad was an engineer in Romania. My dad was always brave. He put my mom through college, which wasn't a very like respected thing or common thing back in the communist regime. So my mom had a degree. She was one of the only ladies in our city that had a degree. And so education was like really big on them. And they're like, we took these risks to bring you to this country, not to go sell used cars. That's not what we... Wow. I can imagine. we had planned. <laughs> yeah. You know, they say uh, man makes plans and God laughs. Wow. So, so you, you mentioned you leased this lot. Now, were you selling used cars? What were you selling then? Yeah. Just used cars, like $5,000 cars, pretty inexpensive cars. They'd go down to like the Bay, Oakland, San Francisco Bay, fly down there Wednesday, buy five or 10 cars, come back. And at this point, we had maybe one other person. So we would sort of just, yeah, we would do everything from taking photos to detail to, you know, wearing 12 hats. Yeah. And at this time, like what, what year was this and what was your scale? I, this was like 08. So it was a pretty, you know, some would say it was a hard time to start, but honestly, it was a great time to start because cars were inexpensive. The only thing that was super expensive was flooring back then. So, but it seems like we're creeping up now too. So we'll Just see. Just like it is today. Yeah. And, and what was your scale at the time? Like how many cars were you selling per year? Well, I think the first year we did like, not much, I'd say maybe a hundred, hundred cars, something like that. And then it kind of compounded quickly. So we went from a hundred, sorry, a year to like 500 a year and then 500 to a thousand and then just kind of kept growing. And so when you say we, who's we? Well, it was, I say we as in, I don't have any partners in the business, but Nick Love, who's one of my best friends has been there for like the whole time. So he was tr totally a tr true blessing. He got laid off. He was decking. And obviously at 08, nobody was looking forward to building decks and spending money on their homes anymore. So you brought him into the business with you? Yeah. Got it. Then he ended up marrying my sister. So he's not going anywhere. Oh, <laughs> there you go. All right. That all worked out. I like that. What did you do in revenue the last 12 months or like last year? 400 million. We have a big gap to bridge over here. All right. So, go, so going back to that starting point. So you're in this independent dealership, right? Bring us like chronologically to today. Like how did you get from one used car lot and then how many franchise dealerships do you have around? Um, we have seven rooftops and then once we're closing on one this month and opening a second DNC. So seven currently running. Got it. All right. So let's bridge that gap. Like what the hell happened in this last decade? Yeah. So a lot happened, but I mean, to walk you from like, give you a quick timeline. Basically, I grew out of every single spot that I was in. So I was on 25th and Holgate, grew out of that. As you know, cars demand for real estate. So I'm parking them all over the street. I mean, parking tickets, move your cars, you know, the whole thing. The parking guys would stop by every day and just have a feast. I mean, literally, we'd have to move cars. To, I'm talking like five years in, not year one, but by the by fifth year, we were already, we had a ton of volume. So this pushes me into like buying real estate. So I go up the street, I see this building for sale. At this point, it's like 2011. And the lady, Jackie, who was a total sweetheart, carries the note back. I only had to put down, I think, like maybe a hundred grand. The building went from like 250 a foot to 50 a foot when I bought it. And I kept doing that and knocking on doors and people were looking for solutions. I mean, they wanted their problem solved. They weren't getting rent anymore, like mechanic shops, dealerships. They were just vacant and nobody was really looking to buy them. And I don't even know if financing was available, but most of these real estate owners had them paid off. They weren't super expensive pieces of uh, real estate. So they ended up carrying the contract back. So I ended up buying like one city block and bought another city block. And basically what, the way I looked at it was like, okay, well, my rent roll is the same price as the mortgage. I might as well just get into an owner carry. What do you mean? Like, so basically you were buying this real estate that you were getting seller financing, right? Like the owner yeah. was financing it to you? Okay. 
And what were you doing to real estate? Like, were you selling cars out at these properties or were you just like leasing them? No, I was uh, selling cars out of them. Or some of them were just storage. Because I was in the urban city. So there weren't like, you couldn't park your cars. Near. I wasn't on like a main drag, if you will. Or, like, What's, and what, what city were you at? Were you in? Portland. Got it. So all this is happening in Portland. Yeah. Never really went anywhere else. So really, I don't think I've ever met someone that sells cars from Portland, let alone someone that is from Portland. So that's a first. Yeah. There's not, I mean, believe it or not, there's big dealers out here, but like, I don't know any of the East coast dealers. You guys don't know that many of the West coast dealers, unless they're big enough to where they kind of like overflow into both sides, like Hendrix or Penske or, you know, some of the big boys, which yeah, yeah. So, so when you buy all these, you start buying all this real estate and I'm assuming, how are you even doing that? Where are you getting the money to do this? I, I, I understand you have seller financing, but like, where are you getting the down payments from? Just retained earnings from your company? Yeah, exactly. And at this point we were, I mean, we were making a lot of money in the cars. We we're not talking huge money down. So you're talking like 50 to a hundred grand. It wasn't that, I mean, it was maybe a lot at the time, but it was reasonable and the sellers were pretty. So Back then to get into a lease, they wanted like two, three months down, you know, they really wanted to be safe. And so I'd always look at it like, well, whether I lease it or get the owner to carry it back, it was almost like the same because the Delta was pretty low and this all ended up working out. So fast forward to like 2018, 2019 properties went from like 50 bucks a foot to 250 bucks a foot. And to really land the plane on how the growth came, I would go refinance a building or two every single time I do an acquisition. And so they're tax-free dollars. I didn't need to go like raise money, but I would just refi. And the rates were typically lower and the mortgage was payment was actually similar, even though I took money out. So you would do cash out refis. Okay. So for anyone that doesn't know what that means, it means you buy a property and again, you could explain it better than me, but buy a property, right? The property appreciates in value for one reason or another. You know, you may have added value or may just be the market. Nonetheless, it appreciates in value. You then go to the bank. The bank gives you a money out of the property as a refinance because now it's worth more. And so you can do whatever you want that money. Of course, it's it's tax-free. Wow. So you were really riding that declining interest rate tailwind. Is that right? Yeah. I'd wow, say so. Incredible. Okay. So you do these cash out refis. Then what do you do with that capital? To kind of keep going on the timeline. So I build this new DNC building, which is the one that you mentioned that looks like a Mercedes store. And I come up with this, like, I was kind of obsessed with jobs at the time. And I'm like, man, simplicity. And I am kind of OCD anyways. I don't like like many... When you say jobs, are you saying Steve Jobs? Yeah. So I was obsessed with his like simplicity. I just got to reading his biography and I'm like, I'm going to Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're so West Coast. I love it. you have to read about jobs if you're from the west coast i guess yeah i did i I read that book so i'm diving into this and i'm like all right what would he do so anywho i put all white cars on the front line which is still the way that dnc is currently and so we went from being known as dnc motor company to basically being known the dealership with white cars but at the time i moved dnc from like an urban district to the main auto mile, which was McLaughlin. And there's only two auto miles. So there's Canyon Road and McLaughlin. And we we, we bought this big building. We put like 70 cars in, indoor and then maybe 150 outdoor. And so what's the idea for the all white cars? I've seen, I've actually seen some dealers do that. What, what's up with that? Well, it was interesting. So the building was all white. The cars were all white. And it was more so marketing because it wasn't really being done on the main auto mile. And so they're like, why the hell does that guy have all white cars out? It just kind of caught their attention while they were driving by. And to, dude, believe it or not, people would literally be like, oh, it's the place that has all the white cars outside. I mean, they don't even know the name of your dealership. You're right. Like it does make you wonder, like, why do you have like all white? Just the fact that you have like one type of color, that's definitely, that definitely grabs attention. But right. let me ask exactly. you this question. Is that like, you know, logistically, like, isn't that a bit tough? Like when you no, have to buy cars, like- front yeah. line. So it's whatever, say you have 20 cars on the front line, behind there, you got every color. So it doesn't, typically a good, a car lot that has 20 or, I'm sorry, 200 plus cars has 20 white cars or 20 black cars, whatever you want to put out there. Moving on from there, we had a conversation before this podcast. And I think what's one of the interesting things about you as a dealer is you have 
or you financed your path to growing your dealership in very unique ways, or I would say a traditional, right? You, the first wave is you did these cash out refinances, right? You finance your growth through real estate, which that's not that uncommon, but you definitely did it in an aggressive way, which worked out for you. The second way, or I say another thing along your journey here is you have made a lot of money in Tesla stock. And so I want to talk about that for a second. When did this happen? And what got you into stock trading? And can you give us some numbers? Give us, give, give us some juicy details. Okay. So what got me into it is, uh, first off, I always wanted to be either a stockbroker or a real estate broker because I thought that's, as a kid, I thought that's how you could you know, make money. And I mean- and you, and, you, and you ended up slinging cars. You see how the world works? Yeah, exactly. I made a bunch of plans, but it just didn't work out the way I thought it would. However, it worked out just fine. And I, I'm happy with what I'm doing. I got back into it. And I always kind of had a small stock portfolio and I would dabble with it. Like I'd buy a little bit of whatever, but I wouldn't pay attention to it. It was never meaningful. And then I started reading a ton about Buffett. I started reading a ton about like Bill Ackman, Steve Cohen, all of the like heavy hitters. And uh, yeah, I just kind of got obsessed with it for like a couple of years. And I would literally wake up at like 4 a.m. and You couldn't sleep. The problem with being a stockbroker, now I realize it's like you don't sleep. I mean, you're like obsessed with it because it doesn't shut off. It's not like you're not selling cars at 4 a.m. or 3 a.m. typically, unless you're in a different country. So you're not going to be watching it as much. But my son actually turned me on to it. So I wasn't a huge Tesla fan. I mean, I was a fan of Musk, but I wasn't like... I was kind of the guy that was fighting it. I'm like, I want to hear a 12-cylinder Ferrari. You know, I want to hear the engine roar. And of course, he's like, I'm like, what car would you pick if you had any, if you had your choice? He's like, Tesla. And I'm like, when I heard him say that, I'm like, really? Why? He's like, well, I just love them, dad. Anyways, so then I started paying attention to the stock. I really started to believe that he can make a huge, and you know, he can actually change it. I saw everybody adapting to it and everybody talking. When was this? What year was this? Don't quote me, but maybe 2017 was like when I first got in. Okay. And so how much how much money did you invest in Tesla stock at that that time? So I might have went in like 200 grand and then 200 turned into 50 grand. And then <laughs> so it it like that stock would whipsaw. I mean, it would and it would keep doing that. So to buy your basis back up, you'd have to buy more, right? So you're like, okay, then you I kind of got in there for like over a million bucks, I think, by the time I was like 29. But I mean, you could turn 500 grand into 200 grand in a heartbeat. So <laughs> the funny the funny thing about it is I always say all my money came from the car industry. And whether it was Tesla stock or yeah. actual, you know, intangible cars. Yeah. And so what, what ended up taking that to, you know, 10 million? Did you lever it up? Like, did you, you know, yeah. you, you, you levered it up? I levered it up, which is kind of against the traditional. Yeah, dude, um, you're you're ballsy, man. You're a gambler. You got to know when to hold them. No one got You got to know to do it. But again, listen, it's you. You take the right risk. Sometimes it works out very well. Yeah, I think the best thing I did is I did lever up, and it's it's untraditional, and people don't talk about it. But if you can sort of measure your risk, I don't know. I mean, I was in a different mindset when all this was going on. I think risk is obviously. I think it has a reward, but I also took the money out and bought dealerships with it. So turned it into a real tangible business without having to raise money. And I think if I needed to come up with today, 10 million sounds like, oh, you could you could get the money from that. You can you can do that easily off a balance sheet or however you want to see that happen. But it wasn't the same. Raising 10 million is not as easy as it sounds. However, when you open Wall Street and people are raising billions at a time, it makes it sound super easy. But you have experience. I mean, you know what it takes. Yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk more about that. Tell me more about, before we get more into the nitty gritty of the business, when did you open all these dealerships, right? I'm, and I'm assuming at the same time you were having kids, growing a family, like walk us through like kind of balancing all that growing family, kids, opening dealerships. How did that all work out for you? I mean, you, you, you don't have any partners. So that's you know pretty fascinating to me. So one of the things that I will say is obviously I have a great... My wife is definitely a pillar of strength when it comes to the kids. And that's been, that's been awesome. But lately, I've sort of found discipline and balance extremely important in my life. And I don't take like missing things that are important lightly where, you know, the first decade... 
I probably wouldn't show up to anything. I'd show up to weddings halfway through that and I'd show up to like, there was no balance, if you will, whatsoever. It was like, get your work done and then show up when you can. And that's how I just ran my life. And it was probably what it took at the beginning because this wasn't exactly like an easy business. I mean, you had to like really be on it constantly. And I didn't know how to delegate necessarily. I think independent car lots in general don't know how to delegate, at least most of them. Most of the owners are doing five or six things, at least the ones I know. So you had that same issue early on? Yeah. Got it. So what was your biggest issue when it came to delegation? How did you kind of grow out of that? I don't think I knew how when I ran a, like a, when I ran one car lot, I'm not sure I knew how to delegate exactly. And then I didn't give it enough time. So when you hire somebody and you have to let them like spread their, you know, like make mistakes and let them take over a department. I think I was insecure in some departments. I felt like I didn't have it right. So I didn't really want to open myself up to them probably. And so I just was like, eh, you know, whatever, just do this, but don't do this. So I would never give somebody full authority or full autonomy. I just give them- And what, what was that inflection point for you though? The first acquisition. So my first acquisition came with a controller, came with like, you know, deep staff. And I'm like, okay, well, there's- there's that. I don't, first off, I don't know how to do this. So I need them. I'm not going to go count parts and turn into financial to a manufacturer by the fifth You were of the sort month. of like, yeah, it was sort of like a force forced into it in a way. Exactly. Because when you're independent, nobody, you don't need to turn into PL on the fifth of the month. Nobody's mm, like, yep, the forcing function, baby. It always works. So, <laughs> so how, how did you find that first acquisition? What did you acquire? What was that? Yeah. So through success and really good. I mean, like hard work ethic. I kept a pretty, I, I have a good reputation. Our company has a good reputation, which was DNC at the time. The neighbor actually across the street, Kitty Corner, decides to retire. So he comes over, he knocks on the door and he's like, it's a Mitsubishi dealership. And he's like, hey, do you want to buy this dealership from me? And I'm like, eh, I don't know. Not really. I'm having fun at what I'm doing. But then of course, I kind of like, you know, I always wanted a new car store. At the time I lost a Lotus dealership. So that was no bueno. I was pretty upset about that, but it turned out that it was, I went to buy one and I, one of my competitors bought it, but. Oh, um, got it. Oh, you were, you were going actually, luxury. But it was a blessing. I mean, it was, I didn't regret not getting it. So anyhow, this guy, Scott walks over and I end up, you know, kind of pursuing the deal and I can walk you through the guts of that first acquisition if you'd like. Yeah. I want to hear about it. Go ahead. Yeah. I took some, I took some notes here. As far as like getting in the meats, it was another one of those carrybacks. So he he carried back half the blue sky. I bought the well, real explain, estate. Explain that to us in like very simple words. What does that mean? Yeah. So call it 2 million bucks for Goodwill back then or blue sky. I, he wanted a million down and then he would carry back the other million over the next five years. So, and is that the deal you ended up working out? Yeah. And wait, what, what franchise was this? Mitsubishi. Got it. That that was was this your first franchise? Yeah. Okay. So you get you get in with the Mitsu, you put a million dollars down, you get seller financing on the second million. Yep. Okay. Go ahead. Well, in doing these deals, they're becoming more and more complex. So you need like you need to buy the FFE, which is furniture, fixtures, and equipment. Then you need working capital, which is I think for this store it was like two million bucks at the time. The other thing that you run into is when you buy stores that don't make that much money, the requirement from the bank is higher. It's interesting because now that I've done some bigger acquisitions, you actually see how much easier it is to finance a big deal that's already like making cash flow. The turnarounds are probably harder to finance, even though you think you're doing yourself a favor because the barrier of entry is lower. Buying a great company is sometimes easier. Yeah. So anyhow, that's some, yeah, some words of wisdom right there. You got the used car equity, you got the blue sky, you got real estate, FF and E, and then the working cap. So every deal, whether it's small or big is, is, you know, it needs some serious coins. You're not getting deals done for a million bucks anymore. Yeah. But w- why did you decide to go franchise? And, and then tell us also, why'd you decide to go Mitsubishi, right? You were running an independent store. So like, what was the, what was the impetus for that? Why go that route? Well, I would say it found me, but I did always have the ambition. I wanted to be a new car dealer. I think most dealers that are independent have this like dream of being a new car store at some point. And I think that's the bad. I, I would agree with that. I, I would agree with that 100%. Even though they don't maybe admit it all the time, but I think down deep, they all want to be new car stores. 
I think one of the best things I heard Alan Haig say is like, he doesn't know very many rich used car dealers. That really stuck with me. I'm like, there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> there's some to that. Yeah, there's some to that. I don't disagree. There's definitely some, but you're right. I'd say more are on the new side. So, okay. So you go down the Mitsu route. So like, what do the numbers look like? Yeah, as far as what? As like profitability. I mean, was it a success? Like, what, what, what yeah, was that so, outcome for? Oh, the one unique piece that I forgot to mention is I got in there with an intermittent management agreement. So I got to run the store as I was buying it for three to six months, which gave me first off credibility with the manufacturer. It's really hard to get approved for a franchise if you've never worked in a franchise store, which I didn't. And if you don't have any new car experience and you can pitch them all you want on like, hey, I'm a good used car guy. And they, they just don't care because they don't make any money off used cars, right? Their whole plan is, can you sell new cars? So I ran it for like three to six months. I put 300 grand in escrow and it was either my loss or my gain. So if I made 600,000 in the six months, I get to keep it. And that would be deducted off of the purchase price. And if, or if I lost, well, I would say 300, he'd probably kick me out at 250 because he doesn't want to go negative. <laughs> and yeah, I got in there and- like, Were you the actual GM? I mean, who was the GM? Yeah. You were the GM? Yeah, for the first, up until we closed. So for the first six months. Wow. Well, I mean, I the gym. Got it. And what what was that like for you? I mean, going from the independent world to the franchise world, suddenly being a GM of the store, like, was that challenging? No, man. I got to say, I think the hidden, biggest hidden secret is acquisitions. I think they're so much easier than startups. Like, you already have the pieces moving and they're just not going maybe as fast as you want them to go. So you're like, okay, we need a new runner. We need a new QB, but you have the infrastructure there, right? So you replace the sales manager because you know how it should be done because you've been selling 200 used cars. And so it's you don't actually, have to deal with that cold star problem. You just kind of dive right in. Right. You don't have to go build a back office and then learn how to like actually build a back office if you've never done it. It's already there and you just try to make it more efficient. So you replace your general manager with somebody that you believe in and you know you upgrade your team and you upgrade the uh, building and that's that's what's worked the timing was also great right i mean 2019 was a was a great year but the store was losing money and we made a ton of money kind of right out of the gate so there is why why is that though what did you do differently just bring your i changed everything i changed the process i changed the pay plan i changed the attitude you know, in a lot of these Mitsubishi dealerships, they're like, oh, we're a subprime dealership. We're a subprime dealership. So they kind of like have that. They carry that with them. But really, that store was just a used car store that sold like 20, 25 new Mitsus. It wasn't really a new car store. Like it wasn't pushing heavy volume. But I will tell you the biggest advantage that I saw is you got financing, lower flooring rates, the process. And I was able to carry all that benefit over to dnc motor company yeah, which yeah, yeah. that's the classic so again for people that don't know, like the classic used car dealer playbook right you go you buy a mitsubishi franchise suddenly all these lenders that will finance your customers on their vehicle purchases are willing to work with you because you're quote-unquote franchise status and to your point like you get better opportunities for floor planning right financing your inventory so there's just embedded advantages with becoming a franchise dealer that impacts an independent dealer. And so, and like what you just said, you bought this Mitsubishi dealership, suddenly you can bring all that over to your independent dealership. So it actually increases value in your independent dealership as well. Yeah, and it, it increases, I mean, it adds a ton of value. The economy of scale is a real tool there. We built a relationship with Ally, Brighton doing that. There is tons of benefits to it. We also didn't have a service department at DNC Motor Company, so we serviced all our used cars through the Mitsu store now because it had a running service department. And I don't know about you, but like, I don't know most independents that are going to go open a parts shop and account for every nut and bolt and washer. And I mean, it's a lot of work. It can be done, but it's much easier to perfect it. You know, like I went in there and changed all the light bulbs and just made people feel better and changed the uniforms and added value like that and invested in some of the assets, which were like shelving. But my point is the process was all there. If somebody told me to go open up a parts department with like nuts and bolts and screws and account for every little washer, (laughs) (laughs) it's messy. It wouldn't be my expertise. Tell us more about kind of your 
your call it turnaround playbook. You just mentioned some things, you know, you focus on these like intangibles, right? Make the place just feel better. Like what wh- was, was that an issue before you stepped in and did that bring a big impact? Yeah, I would say, look, man, one of the biggest things that I think leading to some of the questions in the, in the car industry and how you see it kind of shifting now is the way the showroom does make you feel, I think is critical. I think you can't take away the way you feel when you walk into a business. And I do think the emotional part of the, of the experience is, is important. I think hospitality is critical. I think that feeling is, is, is important, but I would say the turnaround book is basically more sales, less expenses. (laughs) So how do you simple? (laughs) Yeah, It's a two-step process, just more sales and less expenses done. No, I mean, usually you have to either try to work with the people that are there or replace some of the key players and then, you know, increase, increase yeah. the output. Do you, do you still own this Mitsubishi store? Yeah. Nice. I've, I've seen lots of, you know, kind of bigger dealers divest the Mitsubishi stores as they scale. Some hold on to them. No right or wrong path. It just, I'm always, you know, curious to see. I'm not okay. a good seller, so I don't know. <laughs> You're not a good seller? No. Have you sold anything? In my life, I've sold one piece of real estate. No, two pieces of real estate. That's it. Dude, like taking a quick pause, like throughout all this, did you have any mentors? I mean, where, like, who was helping you out? I mean, where were you? Obviously experience, great. But like you were making mistakes and all that and learning from that. But was there anyone you were sort of leaning on advice? Was there anyone for, like that for you in your career? Yeah. I had a lot of good mentors made. And I think that one of the most important things that dealers can do is we all kind of get stuck in this like competition, whatever it is. But the nice thing about being young is people are willing to help you and people are willing to take your call. So if you ask for help and you're like, hey man, I'm stuck here. I've never been refused once when I've asked for help. And people in general, at least in my experience, have been pretty welcoming to that and like, yeah, sure, let me help you out here. Especially when you reach out to people that have done what you want to do. So, you know, when you reach out to a guy that's way bigger than you, people don't have a problem helping you out. It's just usually the guys that you're like toe to toe with that, you know, it's reasonable for them not to want to help you. Yeah. Is there is there anyone specific that you, you know, you want to mention or you can mention here that has been really helpful? Yeah, for I you? had a, a mentor that I flew to and from San Francisco with a ton. His name was Sid Ferris. And he was a really successful dealer here in Oregon for a long time. And he would always just tell me, let go of the outcome, never pull the reins in, you know, just all kinds of like one liners that were just solid. And, you know, I'd fly with him and I'd hear his stories and then I'd fly back, hear his stories. And he's a great guy. He really took a liking to me. And yeah, he's helped me out a ton. And then after that, there was bankers and mentors. But honestly, man, I mean, if you work really hard at what you do and you read, like I would watch Roger Penske's interviews. I'd watch Greg Penske's interviews. I'd watch, I'd just study the industry, however, and whatever. I'd listen to Lithia's earnings. Listen to Brian DeVorce, you know, talk about how all his different inflection points and what what's happening with like when he invested in shift or any of it. I mean, I would just pick up whatever I could. I'd look at their 10 Qs. I'd, I'd try to learn whatever I could. So when I bought the new car store, it really leaned, I really leaned into studying all the new car guys. Prior to that, I didn't really, didn't really do that. But do you think the window of opportunity is still there? Like if someone is listening to this, maybe they're an independent dealer, maybe they're just, you know, not even in the business, but do you think the window of opportunity to do what you did, that playbook, do you think it still exists? I mean, I think if you're really, look, you have to be. I'm glad you didn't answer that so quickly because it is a real question, you know? It is a real question. And, you know, I would say that I was, I've been blessed and I, there's a lot of luck in my life and I've had a great team. I mean, the team that I have, you know, walks on water, they're just solid. And we've been close for a long time. It's hard to build all that. Yeah, I mean, I think it can exist, but you have to have a pretty large savings account. I don't think you can be a good GM and just walk across the street and say, give me half of your dealership. Or It just doesn't. I mean, these guys can just call Lithia and get a check. Why would they? I think the opportunity is like Mazda, Mitsu, and some of the lower barrier of entry brands. I think if you're trying to get into like a bigger franchise store, like pretty much anything outside of those, I think you're. Uh, it's an uphill battle. Unless you have a decent sized checkbook or some type of earn out. The issue that I've seen with like sweat equity is they don't, 
the devil's in the details. It doesn't always work out for the GM like he thought it would. So how do you, how do you incentivize your GMs? A percentage of gross and a percentage of the net is kind of what we're leaning into. But for the first like 90 days when we buy a store, we'll, we'll set certain KPIs and set a forecast and we'll just basically bonus them if they can do all of the different things that we want them to do over the first 90 days. And it'll be large. I mean, we have GMs making a lot of money. So like what? What's a lot of money? Like half a million bucks mm-hmm. plus. You know, it just depends. I mean, obviously. And what is that like percent percent in net or net to sales? What does that come out to be? So the traditional plan is like a 10 grand salary and a 10% of the net. But the issue with that is when you have a smaller store, you have to give away some of the gross, right? Some of the top line and then some of the net. So it doesn't always, it just depends on how big the store is. If you got a big store, pay plan works. But if, it, if you don't have a big store, it just doesn't work. And you want to recruit the best people and keep them motivated. And people in the car industry pay for results. I mean, we're very results-driven here. It's like, you know that. Your results have to show. Yeah. And and so you mentioned like some of those KPIs when you're acquiring a dealership. And you know what, what do you look for? Like, what are those KPIs that you bonus on? Well, one will be like volume of sales. The other one will be CSI. But truly, when we're when we're buying a dealership, it's usually get the sales way up. That's we try to sell more cars and then kind of back into it from there. But we we're usually buying stores that have problems, and so we want to increase increase sales. Yeah, problems. I like problems. They're opportunities. Well, so yeah, exactly. Well, what franchises do you own right now? What do you have? Yeah, so I have Volvo, Honda, Subaru, Nissan, Mitsu, CDJR. And then DNC I thought you were, I thought you said CDG. I was like, <laughs> you have a car, car dealership guy dealership. <laughs> no, I can't afford you, dude. Yeah, I love that. And then, okay, now talk to me about the like wealth management and like wealth creation side of the business, right? I, I've tweeted about this before, but like selling a car is only one aspect of the equation here. Yeah. You've already spoken about the real estate side. What else has been very impactful for you? You know reinsurance, yada, 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 but give us some more of the kind of wealth building behind the dealership business. So I think you can look at it from two different metrics. I, I know you you put out kind of the nuts and bolts of the uh, reinsurance and I read that. And I think it is critical, but in my experience, unless you have scale and volume, reinsurance is not necessarily a huge tool for you. Now, once you sell two, three, four, five, you know, a lot of new cars, there's a huge opportunity there. But what I find is like when I got reinsured at first, I owned DNC Motor Company only. And some of those repairs on like a 650 Beamer are 10 grand. Well, you're wiping out quite a bit of your of your float, right? So the reinsurance would go like loss ratio would go through the roof. Yeah. And so again, for for audience listening, or anyone doesn't know, right? Reinsurance means you're taking the risk when you're selling a vehicle service contract, you know, aka warranty to your customer. And so like what Daniel's saying is you sell a BMW, that thing needs $8,000 of repairs after the fact, you've just lost all the money you may have made on that warranty that you sold or the vehicle service contract that you have sold and you decided to insure in-house. So to your point, it could be a very much a losing proposition, really depends on the type of inventory you're selling and the relative quality. And were you selling and are you selling a lot of these like, you know, older German, you know, or kind of foreign cars? Yeah. Well, with DNC Motor Company, that was the play. It was just a luxury store. So we would kind of do lease. I mean, yeah, we would just do... Once we got bigger, we started just doing you know cars that were coming right off lease. But yeah, in the early days, I mean, you sell like a Land Rover, you write a premium, let's say for two grand and the repairs 10 takes the next five warranties for you to cover that loss. So you can see how that could hurt. My point is reinsurance is a great game and the flow from it is the best thing. And then borrowing against your float is really where the, another another crucial aspect is. So you can borrow against the premium that's that's sitting there at, again, no tax, but you obviously, debt doesn't get taxed. So whether it's real estate or reinsurance or however you look at it. I think that the biggest wealth creation in the car industry, that's definitely one of the tools. But I think really it's building your auto group and building your performance. So the better you perform as an auto group, the higher your valuation will be. And as you can see, I mean, these stores are trading, you know, if you build a nice group, you can probably get 10 times EBITDA or something like that. 
pretty quickly, especially if you build a big platform in scale. So the, I think performance should be your number one, number one goal and really should be your focus. The reinsurance will come with it, but you're, you're, you're basically saying, but, but that only matters if you're exiting at some point. Well, it matters even when you're borrowing money and you're looking to grow because you can tap into your unlocked equity, right? So like if you have a blue sky on your group, that's worth say 50 million, you can tap into that and you can tap into your, to your equity off your balance sheet if you have a good lender. So it does matter, you know, for growth. It helps you finance deals. It helps you do all the same things without necessarily having to refi or go in there and restructure debt. Do you think you do you think you'll ever sell? I mean, ever is a long time. I'm 35 years old, so <laughs> everyone listening to this podcast are like da 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 da. <laughs> no, I uh, I don't I don't plan on selling, man. I have four kids, and I I want to build it as a legacy, and I really do love what I'm doing. Do you want your kids to come into the business? Yeah. So if I had it my way, I have four kids. I would. That's prefer... a that's a big if, dude. That's a big if. Yeah, I don't think I have it my way, but. Yeah, I'd love to work with my kids, man. I really would. And I think it's a good industry. I think it's it's evolving. I think there's a lot of opportunity and you can you can build a pretty big platform slowly but surely. Talk, talk to us more about your platform. Like who who helps you run this, you know, conglomerate? How do you do this? Well, we have now we have more, I mean, our corporate overhead is probably more extensive than like the store to store, but we were building to grow. So my ambitions were probably, they've been neutered a bit with this economy, but <laughs> we definitely had like, you know, we, our goal was drive to 25. So we were planning on having 25 stores by the end of 2025. Drive to 20. All, I listen, all I've been hearing is survive till 25. So you're, you're on the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> so we'll see how bad this recession hurts me. And then I'll let you know my new goals. I'm going to, I'm going to, like every wise man says, when the when the economy changes, what do you do? You change with it, right? So, but we're doing an acquisition now. It is a little bit harder, as far as like it, they do require more skin in the game. So the platform, yeah, I have a, a wonderful CFO. I got an awesome director of operations. I got HR. You know the whole thing. So kind of a big C suite. And how did you find all three of those people? Acquisition, or is it like a fresh hire? How did you get them? No, so I my CFO and uh, kind of business development. I hired him. Well, he kind of came on to the first acquisition. He came with me with the first acquisition, and he came on to just help me land the plane on the first deal. And then he just never left. I kept like feeding him work, feeding him work, feeding him work. He worked for KPMG, which is one of the big three accounting firms, and I just couldn't let him go because he just sort of like filled in all my insecurities, you know. So yeah, what were those insecurities? It wasn't so much insecurities, but it was like a, a ton of communication with financial people from every manufacturer, a ton of questions. I mean, the one thing that I think it, when you go from an independent to a franchise, you really need a bench because it changes. Like people want to know manufacturers come into your dealership all the time. OEMs come in and they just, if you're not showing them love, you're neglecting them. Right. So then, yeah. I mean, everyone needs a ton of your time. Yeah. So I want to I want to talk more about your platform and your team you just mentioned, but wh where do they compliment you the most? Like, what is that? You know, what do you consider yourself kind of like the best at, and what are the things that you know you outsource to the rest of your team? Yeah, so I've gotten pretty good at delegating, but I think I'm I'm also hands on. Like, I'm not afraid to walk into a dealership and chat and hang out and see kind of feel the culture and do all that. But I'd say as far as like financial reporting, they they go through everything. I mean, I don't have a say in what, what they do at all. I just get the report and it's like, okay, well, that's where we, that's where we landed, I guess. So I'd say they take all that away, which is huge. And then, I mean, everything, man. I mean, I'm, they can do a whole deal without me really involved. However, I'm not that guy, but I'd say everything without, yeah, they can, they can do everything. I mean, literally take a whole deal down if you want them to, whatever, whatever. Build a great team, dude. Yeah, they're awesome. I guess they don't need me anymore, so. Well, then it means you're doing something right. You should be proud of that. T tell me more about your your challenges today, right? Like, what are the things or what are areas of focus? It could be operational, it could be technological, whatever. But like, what are the biggest challenges for you at, in the business at the moment? 
you know, I would say the biggest challenge that we have today is probably having your underlying costs go up. By that, I mean flooring and just your underlying costs that you can't control. And then feeling kind of compression from the top and the bottom. So you essentially have to restructure some pay plans or you have to restructure some of the costs of these dealerships, which, you know, there's only a few line items, personnel, marketing, you know, maybe a couple more in there, but those are the big ones. And that's just a tough conversation because it just, it just, just hard. And it's hard to keep the culture there and then restructure kind of where you should be, but you're feeling pressure from the consumer and you're feeling pressure from banks. So how have you been navigating those conversations? And, you know, um, I, I think we all know of those conversations, but like, what's been, how have you been handling that? I mean, I try to do it with transparency and just say, hey, look, this is where our, our goal is, call it gross to net 4%. We're hitting at two. Can we, what do you think we can do? This is how I see this working out. It's either we kind of, you know, maybe you wear two hats for the next couple of months. Maybe we don't need a GSM and a GM in some stores, or we don't need a GM in this store. Or, you know, those are the conversations we're having, but we try to do it all above board. Look, I think I think you just said a really important point, which is like you said it's not me against you, right? You have a goal, and we're both trying to reach that goal, and then let's work together to find a path to get to that goal. Yep, and just try to do it in a healthy, empathetic way. I mean, it's not like I'm having fun with these combos, man. They're they suck. You know, I'd rather just talk about growth and how do we grow our way out of this, but. You know, if we got to 70% of our goal and we don't see ourselves getting like any higher that what do you do? Well, what about on, what about on the tech side? Like any, any tech stuff or, you know, how's that working for you? Your dealership? Are you, are you, you seem to be, you know, more tech savvy and, you know, you mentioned Steve Jobs, you're a fan. So like, have you implemented any new tools, any new AI software? I mean, I'm just curious how you're handling that side of the world. Yeah. So uh, the Biggest tool that I mean, we use all the traditional platforms, Viato, Vin Solution, Dealer Socket. I mean, we're pretty intertwined with Cox Automotive. I don't know that. I think one of your questions was like, hey, dude, so are you going to hitch your horse to one wagon? I mean, how many wagons are there? There's like two. You had mentioned to me something interesting about rebates. Talk, give, us, give us the juice on rebates. What, what we got over here? All right. So, rebates, I mean, I don't, I'm not a professional at this, but. And I don't have the scale, but I did realize very early on that rebates, or not very early on, sorry, kind of in the last couple of years, that there's everything's up for negotiation in the car business. And all of these different vendors, there's a point of negotiation. There's a point of below the line rebates. There's Everything a, is up for negotiation. Yeah. There's no like, the there's off menu deals. I don't think if you took two dealer platforms, I don't think you'd see the same pricing between any of the two. There's, so so what have you negotiated? G- give us the secrets. Give us the juice. What have you negotiated? Oh, man. I don't know. You're going to take away my... my vent- I'm probably going to get a call immediately after this podcast. But yeah, like with, for example, with Cox Automotive, the more, the more you give them, the more you use their vendors, they'll give you back a certain percentage. So say, you're, say it costs 500 grand a, a month, for example, that you spend with Cox, which it sounds like a ton, but with AutoTrader, Viato, Vin... I mean, Vin dealer.com, you can get there pretty quick with seven or eight rooftops. So you get a percentage of that back. So call it, you know, 10% would be 50 grand, 5% would be 25 grand. That Those are high numbers. You're probably not getting that back, but you're getting like 10 grand back a month, which helped. But they're pretty smart too. Again, that's up for negotiation too. The big boys probably get way more. Oh yeah, I'm sure. And look, and by the way, like I, they should be thrilled if they're listening right now because, you know, May may every dealer partner with you one brand and use you know all of their services. I'm sure every vendor will give you a rebate back. I would love to give you five or ten percent back if you use six of my services, right? Yeah, I guess that's a good point. And honestly, I mean, think about it. When they lock you in like that, their scale and their SaaS evaluation is massive. I mean, when you think of like Viato, you're paying whatever couple grand a month per store. Not a bad gig. I mean, I don't think they're what about, talk to us about like, you know, do you buy from auction cars, used cars? Yeah, we have a bunch of buyers now, but I used to buy a ton. And yeah, we buy from Mannheim. That's the main source. And then 
the organic traffic from that's the advantage of having uh, new car stores. I mean, the trades are just, it's hard to get those cars. And so you get, Oh yeah. You, the trades are 50%. Yeah. What about auctions? I mean, do you get rebates there? No, I should, there probably are rebates there too. I should like the buy fees are bananas. I mean, if you look at like what they've just gone up dramatically, I'm sure that there's a negotiation for everything. Oh, uh, you said it yourself. But but tell me more about your supply, right? Where are you buying most of your used cars? I mean, other than trade-ins, you mentioned you have a bunch of buyers. So where are you sourcing these cars? Mainly like Riverside, California, Oakland, California, which is the Bay Area, all of that San Francisco Bay. These are two pretty big hubs. Yeah, but, but how are you sourcing them? Online. So we're doing a ton of Mannheim and then they use Viato. And then we go to Spokane. So we have buyers that go in the lane in Spokane. And do you trucks. buy like, do you buy direct from consumer or any of that stuff? We do, but we're not great at it, to be honest with you. There's a lot of work to be done there. We don't and have And dude, like, like I respect the, I respect just like the honesty, right? Like you're not great at it. doesn't mean you can't become great at it, but like also knowing where, you know, you excel at different parts in the business. You don't have to be a superstar at every single thing. Yeah, we've tried and, you know, we've tried to incentivize like salesmen to buy cars. It, they're just not great. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you know, cars are now rebranded to Cars Commerce. They're a partner of the podcast as well. And I'm very bullish on their AccuTrade platform. I've just I've just gotten to know, you know, um, Robert Hollinshead and and Alex Fetter, the CEO, and they've really built something special there. The fact that they have all that first party data, um, it just really allows you to put a put a good number on a consumer car that, you know, is really backed by real data. So I'm I'm pretty bullish on that. And just you know, the future of how they're going to evolve that product. I think I think that's the right way the industry's trending. No, I agree with you. I mean, it, it'll all this stuff though. The one thing I will say about technology is in all these dealerships that I bought, there's never been a lack of technology ever. I mean, some stores I bought have overlapped in desking tools, three desking tools, two inventory management tools. I mean, like everything you can imagine. But the people and the organization needs to be able to run it. Like the keeper machine. I mean, I can't tell you how many stores I've looked at that like they don't even know how to use the machine. It's a disaster, right? Like, and that machine. I mean, you like make up a great grand. point, right? Like people, yeah. Like a lot of this stuff is. You see, this is again, this is the trend. Like where you're seeing every, you know, every big brand is trying to kind of consolidate their offerings because it's too much. They are aware every dealer has fifty different systems. No one wants to use fifty different systems, let alone ten different systems. You know, and so it's that I call it the SaaS fatigue. It's just too much. And whoever simplifies things, like like everyone, I mean, everyone that simplifies it into one one really integrated platform, it's just they're gonna win. And then that'll have its own challenges too, right? Because you're just stuck in one platform. But I mean, oh yeah, because if you don't, if you don't, if the platform doesn't deliver, well, then now you know all your eggs are in one basket. You know, so now you have to go find another platform. Hundred percent. And then the next question is, will manufacturer rebates actually let you use it? Like the co-op money, will they co-op with Techion or will they co-op with, because they co-op with Cox, right? And they co-op with some of the other big brands, but will they do it with the one that is the one sweet option? Because if they don't, then the manufacturer won't open up the war chest to them. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like you, this is another great point for anyone in the audience that doesn't know what this means, right? But co-op just means that you have the manufacturers participating and you know actually subsidizing some of your software and marketing or whatever as a dealer right so you see kia ads right and maybe a dealer is running them well kia may be paying for part of that ad and also for some of their software and whatnot and so that's very important for dealers because it subsidizes your costs right and so if if Kia, I'm just using them as an example, by the way, if they're not going to pay for a part of my CRM with this vendor, I'm not going to use this vendor or it's very unlikely I'm going to use them because it's going to cost me a lot more. It doesn't make any sense. So that's an important And if you one. get 40 cents on the dollar back that you spend with one vendor and you get no dollars back, or no cents back on the other, you're probably not going to go with them, right? I mean, and some of these manufacturers honestly just don't do business with new vendors. Like they lock out tech platforms for security reasons or whatever else. It takes a while to get in the door. Wink, wink, security reasons. Wink, wink. <laughs> well, that's what they tell me. I don't know. <laughs> uh, you go to Vegas, they go to Vegas, they you know, have a dinner, have a dinner, have a couple of drinks and the security reasons change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe.
Uh, oh man dude i mean so where what topic haven't we touched on here we spoke about the dealer growth the dealer should go we spoke about process we spoke about tesla what are you most bullish on for the industry right now like when you think about trends how your dealer groups are going to evolve where's your head at like where's that your vision where are you going towards i mean short term i'm pretty bullish on new cars i think that based on what's happened in the last couple of years i think that new cars are going to be in demand for the next, I don't know, two or three years. I definitely think that they're going to, yeah, they're going to, new car sales will continue to go up. And you posted something the other day, but I think that trend's going to continue to outpace the used cars. Did you see my tweet about Subarus in Seattle? Yeah. So I did like it. You should do that in Portland too. You know, we keep Portland weird down here. That's our slogan. Keep Portland weird. Do you guys have voodoo donuts over there? It's good, right? We can make you a donut in any shape you'd like. Only <laughs> yeah, you use that, your imagination. Yeah, they have some crazy donuts. I've seen that stuff. It's pretty, pretty intense. Dude, I've never uh, been there. I've actually never been to that side of the country. Not sorry, not that side of the country, that specific state. But yeah, I've just never been there. Definitely been to California and all that. Well, you should come over. You can you can stay with me. Yeah. Let's do it. I'm in. <laughs> Rally. Yeah, the only other thing is, I guess. The innovation of like selling cars online where everybody's really hyper-focused on that and sort of, it seems like they're not as bullish on the showroom. I think we touched on that. I'm still pretty bullish on the showroom. I think in my opinion, the luxury side of it, especially is probably never going to get out of the showroom concept. Just like you don't see Laura Piana or Gucci or L- Louis. I never thought Laura Piano would make it to my podcast, but there it is. There it is. <laughs> no, but you see these guys really leaning into the showroom. And so what makes you think that like Mercedes-Benz is not going to want to show when, or Rolex? Do you see people buying Rolex online without like talking to a jeweler or having some type of relationship? I feel like... To be honest, yes, I actually do see that. People do buy those online, but I understand your point because at the luxury experience, it's a very, it's a very discretionary purchase and it doesn't happen every day. So if I'm going to buy a beautiful luxury vehicle, something that's more than just like a point A to point B, yeah, I'm going to want to go see in the showroom, touch it, feel it, sit in it, smell it, ask some questions and whatnot. So I totally agree with you there. But what do you think about the more like, you know, sub $30,000 car? I mean, do you think that's going to trend more online? Are you still bullish on the showroom there? What's your thoughts? No, I think Espe- that... Especially as someone, like you said, you're you're so, you know, kind of such a Tesla, I, I'm, you know, for lack of a better term, not fanatic, but like connoisseur or whatever you want to call it. How do you kind of, how do you, you know, balance those two? I think that Tesla has been able to conquer the the impossible, right? So I don't know that being like, for example, Ford, or whatever manufacturer OEM you want to talk about, they have to really catch up when it comes to EV and then disrupting their whole dealer body that's selling that they're selling cars to. Because once the OEM drops cars on your lot, they're, it's considered sold for them. So we are their buyer, essentially. So they just send it to our lot. They sold 100 new Fords. For them to like disrupt that and disrupt all their factory lines and reinvent themselves and spend billions of dollars in R&D, to get themselves to catch up to Tesla and EV and then to honestly get themselves to fix the, to take over the dealer. I don't know that it just seems like a lot more work than they're willing to do, at least for the next decade. I think they're got the, they got their hands full. And quite frankly, dude, I mean, you look at some of these manufacturers and you see that I'm like, figure out the navigation before you beat Tesla, please. I mean, just fix the nav. Can the nav just be easy to use before you guys all conquer Tesla and you guys are going to be the, you guys need to be the next Elon killer. Just fix the nap so we can use it easily. So we're not like punching a screen, swirling a knob. I mean, by the time they do that, you're holding your phone and just driving to the next place. Before we any final thoughts, if people want to reach out to you, learn more about your group, how can they learn more? Yeah, I mean, my email is Daniel at Time Auto. That's probably the best way to get hold of me. There we go. Well, by the way, why Time Auto? How'd you come up with that name? Yeah. I mean, I think time is critical to everybody. Right. And I think I just, I've always looked at like, okay, what do you want to do in this, this amount of time? And I've always taken it and kind of used it in different compartments. And 
I didn't really expect it to be available. I was like, ah, what's the, what's the most important thing that we have time. And then I looked it up and it was like time auto. I'm like, wow, seems like somebody would have snatched that up and then time auto group and sort of leaned into it. I definitely explored with all the, uh, like Kratic auto group, DNC auto group. And I'm like, well, at the time I didn't know where I was going to take this. So if I didn't want to sell one or two stores, um, I didn't have to brand it around my personal name, but you're a thoughtful mother effer, dude. I love it. You did the right move. Well, thanks for having me on, man. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.